1: It's Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. The only real last day in February from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Two great or at least influential Americans shuffled off the stage today. One mortally and one just professionally. Mitch McConnell has announced that he'll be stepping down in September. And the comedian, Richard Lewis, was felled by a heart attack at the age of 76. I have always loved the comic stylings of Richard Lewis. I once saw him play Westbury Music Fair in the round. Comedy in the round. It it wouldn't seem to work, but it did when Richard Lewis was on stage. Now, the interesting thing about Richard Lewis is he claims to have invented, and this might have even been referenced in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, of which he uh, has been a regular. He claims to have invented the idiom from hell. It was the car rental from hell. It was the airplane ride from hell. And when he claims this to others, they would always express astonishment and give pushback. But from what I understand, there aren't too many references to whatever being from hell before Richard Lewis started saying it. I just wish other phrases that are out there in the ether could attach themselves to a specific person. Even if that's not true, it would not. It would be nice to have the cultural explanation for where a lot of these phrases that don't seem to work for anyone, that have just been imposed on us, that we didn't ask for, and from hell's better than all of that, but there are so many phrases that just crush us, and we don't even know from whence they came, right? The, we need to figure out the Wuhan lab or the wet market of phrases like not so much. After saying something, saying, but the others, not so much. Mitch McConnell, an influential leader who conservatives liked until after Trump came into office, not so much. Or, I was today years old. Or, I'm young enough to remember. The sort of phrases, hella, hella anything. That one, maybe I understand, it's a little more street. But phrases like, I'm young enough to remember, and then we all obligatorily have to titter at the cleverness of someone claiming that they're old enough to, why, how? At least we can have a patient zero of this phrase, like a Richard Lewis, who I thank for coming up, or at least claiming the from hell phrasing. Mitch McConnell has decided that, his job is from hell, the government is from hell, that I can't believe we're doing this again with a potential shutdown that I decried on Monday. The Republican leader of the Senate agrees with me, and he's leaving, did Trump push him out? He sure did, but there goes Mitch McConnell. I know some people will say, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out, but I'm young enough to remember that Mitch McConnell is young enough to remember World War II, also the invention of Silly Putty. Seriously, Silly Putty. Invented 1943. Mitch McConnell, born 1942, shall be retiring 2024. On the show today, I shall spiel about an amazing price innovation in the world of fast food that is barely an inch forward. Still has everyone freaking out their arteries are clogged with surprise and shock. But first, Steve Kahl is back to talk about his book, The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the origins of America's invasion of Iraq. We shall pick back up where we left off, and broaden the conversation to encompass the lessons and reverberations of our invasion of Iraq. Steve Kahl, part two, up next. Steve Call is author of The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the origins of America's invasion of Iraq. Okay, so here is the fascinating game theory. Van Nyman needs to figure this out. You have one actor, Saddam Hussein, who is convinced that his adversary knows that he doesn't have the casus belli, which is the weapons program. You have another actor who feels they cannot dissuade this guy because he really is pursuing the weapons program and all his public pronouncements, you know, um, dismissing charges or denying that he has the weapons program is further proof that he's trying to obscure his weapons program. There seems to be no way, if that is the underlying dynamic, there is no way to communicate or avoid a war anything that either well anything that saddam hussein did which actively would indicate they know i don't have it would confirm to the other side oh my god he has it
2: yes that's true and it happened uh over years and in many different fora and in kind of a layered way so there were there were layers upon layers of that mirroring that you've just described I think the alternative to war would have had to arise from a conviction that deterrence was good enough. Because ultimately, if Saddam had weapons, um, then you had two choices. You could try to wage a preemptive war by going in and disarming him by force, which is what we did in 2003. Or you could tell him, um, look, we think that you're lying. We think you do have these weapons, but let us make it clear, if you ever take them out of your box, your hiding place. If you ever uh, rattle them around, refer to them as something you're going to use, we're gonna do the following things and that is going to be the end of you. And so please understand we mean what we say. You have, to, deterrence messages have to be credible, so you'd have to be able to back them up. But that that was kind of the policy through the 90s and before 9-11. It was, this guy is a menace, uh, He's a pain, he's annoying, He ha- he's dangerous, but we don't see an imminent threat or an unmanageable threat that requires us to invade preemptively. Um, yeah. And you, know, you can ask, well, why would we think of Saddam in particular as the one who required our preemption, who required us to go in and, and eliminate the threat before it could gestate when there's also North Korea, there's also Iran. And I think part of the answer is just because we could. I mean, he didn't, he couldn't stop us as we, as we demonstrated in March. We, you know, even with a fairly light force, we were able to drive straight into Baghdad, knock his regime down. Yes, it took five months or something to find him, but, um, yes, it could be done. And so it, 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 it there was no plausible plan of that sort in North Korea, because the North Koreans would have devastated South Korea, killed uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people, destroyed the city of Seoul, uh, mm-hmm. and Iran would have been extremely difficult to um, de- decapitate in the way that we did with the Ba'ath Party government. So I think the loss of faith in deterrence after 9-11 is the one part of that game of mirrors that could have been handled in a different way, and then we wouldn't have had a war.
1: But the lesson for autocrats the world over is pretty dispiriting, which is that given the choice between not having the capacity to wage massive casualties and violence and having the capacity it is much much better to credibly have the capacity they will not believe you if you say you don't have the uh, weapons of mass destruction and they further will take you out if you don't show that you could kill hundreds of thousands of people if they come in
2: i'm afraid that's i'm afraid that is a legacy of the invasion um which you know is it sends a signal it sent a signal to a lot of governments that if you fear An invasion, a a regime change policy by a superpower, Uh, you better have a nuclear weapon that they're afraid of that will prevent them from coming across the border. And it's funny because you remember the Axis of Evil speech in, I think, uh, State of the Union 2002, where President Bush singled out uh, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as kind of unacceptable rogue states in a post 9 11 world. And Everybody took that seriously. On the other side, I think we can certainly see Saddam. and He was a little slow to get it, but it, he quickly understood that Bush was saying something that might affect him. And the Libyans were listening to that speech. And what did they do? They basically called up MI6 and said, "We would like to give up the nuclear materials we bought from AQ Khan. Like, we don't want any part of this." Uh, and they they basically unilaterally disarmed because they were afraid of this. Mm-hmm. And then what? And then then they watched as the as the Americans uh, went into Iraq, um, and and then the world watched as the Americans went into Libya and decapitated Gaddafi, who had disarmed. And after that, like, who would disarm? <laughs> it right. doesn't make you know. You you basically you do what you're supposed to do, and then you lose your government anyway. So yeah, I think I think your point is is now the lesson of the last twenty years unintentionally.
1: There's Gaddafi's body in a ditch defiled by, uh, uh, well, I don't even want to get into what they did to Gaddafi's body, but that's the testament. That's all every would-be or actual dictator needs to know about this lesson. Oh my gosh. I want to go back to a couple other things. The standard, I guess of the people who've really looked at it, the standard story about American intelligence and the failure goes something like this we got the answer that we were looking for. We siloed the information. It was such a failure because we never allowed dissent. It was a flawed process through and through, and it was fated to come to this conclusion. But as you say, the Germans believed it. The UK believed it. Saddam Hussein wanted uh, the world to believe it. How much of the standard story deserves a little tweaking, do you think?
2: I think uh, it does deserve some tweaking, mostly because the evidence collection that fed this groupthink was so flawed. Some of that was avoidable and politicized, but some of it was just this hall of mirrors that we were talking about earlier. I mean, for example, there was this UN uh, inspection operation that was running around Iraq looking for WMD for years and years. And yeah, I was going to ask of, how much blame does the UN bear? I don't think a ton, but they, but there is something that they did in their aggression that exacerbated the the illusion that Saddam probably was hiding WMD. So you know they had the power to go anywhere, ask anything, and they did a lot of incredible disarmament work. I mean they they blew up all of his missiles. They documented the history of his nuclear program pretty accurately. You know, they were almost done giving him a clean bill of health on the nuclear program, the biological, chemical stuff, uh, still working on it. But they did a lot of work. But at the end, they thought, you know, there's still stuff missing. He's still lying. There's still something we're not finding. And so they started to target his security services rather than looking for his weapons facilities. And they thought that these... Like the equivalent of the Secret Service, that's wh- that's who was hiding the stuff that remained. And so, if they challenged those guys, watch them move, listen to their chatter, eavesdropped on them, then they would follow them to the secret hiding places. But what happened was they mistook the actions of these Secret Service agents when they challenged them for evidence that they were covering something up. What they were really doing was protecting the president, Saddam Hussein. Like they thought that these inspectors were spies. And that they were coming into the presidential offices because they wanted to assassinate saddam it would be like if the united states submitted itself to a disarmament inspection regime and instead of looking around you know colorado or wherever our missiles are they came to the white house and said we're going into the oval office because we know the documents are in the drawer of you know of, of resolute desk you know so and of course, they overreacted to that. But when they overreacted, we said, see, they're hiding something. Yeah. And that all fed into the analysis uh, in capitals in the West, not just in the in the US.
1: So it is the responsibility of the American administration, uh, Western administrations, but uh, America is paramount to keep I don't know, the world safe, America safe, its citizens safe. Um, and the lesson is the you have to make sure the intelligence is good uh, from faulty intelligence, fruits of that poison tree, you'll never have uh, great or even acceptable outcomes. But if you are you if you are a U.S leader who has to make this call and you obviously think that the intelligence is not tremendously flawed and you get back this, these dossier dossier after dossier indicating that the intelligence shows that this is a credible threat i don't know dick cheney spoke of the 1% doctrine if there is even right. a, in a different context right. but if there's even a small chance of of this happening you have to do something it would seem pretty compelling that action is required so short of just make sure the intelligence isn't wrong. What can a leader do? A leader, I think a leader should say, there is always the chance, even if my intelligence agencies, let's look at this example of Saddam Hussein, even if they say we're 100% or close to 100% correct, you have to downgrade that and know that it's not 100% correct. But then what do you do? How do you act without hubris, but also to, with also the proper urgency, if there is this threat out there?
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I mean, look, it's uh, it's a hard job. That's why they pay presidents the big bucks. I mean, if, hopefully they- <laughs>
1: 365000
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, I mean, I hope they're thoughtful about that question. I think if you have a view of history in these circumstances, the kind of ticking bomb scenario is pretty rare in world history. Um, now, you can get wind of an enemy planning a surprise attack with a conventional military It's going to cross your border. And if you detect that or you think there's a really good chance that they might, then you basically have two choices. You can t- try to deter them by saying, I know what you're planning to do. If you do it. I'm going to kidnap your children and you know, and, and bomb your capital. Um, and so don't do it. Whatever deterrence message you think will get through, you deliver that. And you know, George H.W. Bush, in the case of Saddam Hussein, did that. He failed to deter Saddam before he invaded Kuwait, didn't understand what he was planning to do, got bad advice from Arab allies. Then he corrected that mistake on the eve of the war to expel Iraqi troops from Kuwait. He sent James Baker to send a message to Tariq Aziz, which was basically, if you gas our troops, we're going to have a fair fight. Put your gloves on. You're going to lose. You really shouldn't do this. But if you want to have a fair fight, we'll have a fair fight. But if you gas our troops, we're going to destroy your country and you're going to be in ruins. And he didn't Baker didn't mention nukes, but Saddam assumed that he was going to be nuked. And what happened? He had deployed gas, chemical weapons, all around the front and was planning to use it against U.S. troops. But when that deterrence message came through, at the last minute, he said, don't touch that stuff. And, you know, so it's just a reminder that even in extreme circumstances, when you might think the other guy isn't responsive that deterrence works. So that's choice number one. Choice number two is you just decide one percent doctrine, whatever you want to call it. I am not going to take any risk. I'm not going to trust in deterrence, even though history tells me it's a pretty good bet. It can't ever be relied upon a thousand percent. So I'm just going to preempt. And if uh, if it turns out that everything I've been told is wrong, um, I'll have rid the world of a bad guy. And I'm willing to, to take accountability for my actions because I acted in sincere kind of, you know, defense of American security. That I mean, that's, that's base as, as I read it, those are your yeah. two choices. If you're in that office, that's
1: the story the former neocons that, uh, I've heard from are telling.
2: Yeah. I yep. mean, that's basically their defense is, um, you know, we, we couldn't in the aftermath of nine 11, the potential marriage of millenarian, catastrophic terrorism, and WMD was just too great a risk. Um, You know, we didn't have the perspective that we acquired later that Al-Qaeda had in fact actually carried off a moonshot on 9-11. That was their peak. That was peak Al-Qaeda and that they didn't have contact with states that could provide them with WMD. But, you know, you didn't know what you didn't know at that point, and so that, that was the context in which this decision was made. I mean, obviously, in hindsight, um, a greater emphasis on deterrence uh, would have uh, worked, and it would have saved us um, an enormous um, set of costs. And it was, you know, the preferred. It, it was what Colin Powell, for example, um, in the cabinet, a fairly credible experienced figure said that's what I would do if I were you but the president went a different way
1: lastly while I have you I've been reading your reporting on Gaza in The New Yorker and here's where in reading the book I thought of some of the uh, some of the choices um, that the IDF in America is making the military operation against Saddam Hussein worked very well but then afterwards the occupation, created all these casualties created all this horror created all this blowback and so my question is you know i talked to uh bruce hoffman of rand he says in the entire history of him um analyzing insurgencies i think sri lanka was the only one that was suppressed by purely kinetic means we always hear that for every terrorist you kill you create two more or whatever the multiple is does your reading of uh these occupations show that? And does that indicate that there is no way to come out the other end, having, you know, sufficiently degraded the capacity of the enemy? As I look at Iraq, the people there suffered terrible calamities. But now, from the United States perspective of turning an enemy into at least a non-enemy, would you say that that is an example that maybe the world can cite as saying that it's not true that every insurgency creates so much terrorism that it's much worse than even trying to than even going in in the first
2: place well I think I mean in Iraq you had the Islamic State born out of the conflict that followed the invasion and and then you know years later um it morphed and took over large sections of Iraq and Syria and wreaked all kinds of havoc in the streets of Paris so yeah, it was a pretty bad uh, rebound effect, and the the kind of um, experts in some of those Islamic State movements were ex-Saddam, um, you know, military technicians and helicopter pilots, and so were smart guys who who knew how to to create havoc. So um yeah i think i think i you know what rings in my ears from over the years of reporting around these kinds of issues and just talking to lots of people who have to make these decisions in government um there was, you remember there was a general lebanese american general general Abizade, who was one of the um i think john Abizade is his name he was i think the head of central command at, at some point after the invasion of iraq and he he basically said um you know you have to understand when you go into a country, especially in the media age, in the in the social media age, the satellite age, satellite television age, the clock is ticking. You know, you've got 30 days, 60 days. You want to go in and knock somebody off. You want to go in and deliver humanitarian aid. You want to go in and try to stabilize a country that is in terrible suffering. And you want to wear fatigues while you do it, carrying a foreign flag no matter where you go, especially in the Arab world. You better be out the door in sixty to ninety days because if you stay, people are going to make use of you as an occupying force. Even if, you know, they even if they didn't have a cause before you arrived, they're going to come up with one because it's a ticket to political kind of success and competition and so forth. So I always thought that made sense. You see that the world can intervene. Um, in humanitarian crises, uh, even in in purely kind of military conflicts for short periods, and then turn it over to some, you know, less aggressive, less vulnerable force or just withdraw. Um, But um, I think that's also like, so if you were to rerun the Iraq scenario, and you said we just must invade because of the 1% doctrine. We just must do it. Then maybe don't have a four-year plan. Maybe have a maybe have a 90-day plan.
1: Steve Call is the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning Ghost Wars. He's a professor at a Columbia School of Journalism. I read him in The New Yorker. Still, always, never skip a Steve Call article. His new book is The Achilles Trap, Saddam Hussein, the CIA, and the Origins of America's Invasion of Iraq. Steve, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. And now the spiel, a popular fast food chain, is considering a new pricing scheme. Here's Fox News 11 with details. In the mood for Wendy's? I am not, thus ending our coverage. <laughs> the gist was produced by Corey Wara. Quite Mallards was, okay, okay, okay. I was just a hook. Sometimes lesser communicators than I will throw out the hook to get you interested in the lead. I don't want a Wendy's fast food burger, but I do want you to hear the stories of Wendy's fast food burgers and what they're doing about their prices of fast food burgers. I'm going to deny Fox News 11. Let's turn to Pittsburgh station, KDK and John Delano with a pleasantly lilting take on the
2: topic. Suppose you are standing in line at your favorite fast food restaurant to buy a $5 hamburger. But when you get to the kiosk or cashier, the price on the menu changes to $6. Economists call it dynamic or surge pricing. And Wendy's CEO, Kirk Tanner has just announced his fast food chain wants to adjust food prices throughout the day.
1: I totally grasp and understand the concept, but there was one element in most of the coverage of Wendy's dynamic pricing that fox 11 does provide and so i will play that whole clip a uh, warning or note for listeners the clip starts with a rhetorical question some people get freaked out by answering it earnestly we ask your forbearance
2: in the mood for wendy's prices are about to fluctuate depending on the time of day the burger chain announced it will test a surge pricing model where costs seesaw throughout the day based on demand for example price of a dave's burger could cost up to a dollar more during the lunchtime rush but could go down a buck after 2 p.m. uber uses a similar surge pricing model wendy's
1: will launch theirs next year so there's the uber reference without which we couldn't possibly understand the concept of supply and demand. No, really, I don't think we could understand it. It was in and prominent in so much coverage, I said to myself, I guess Americans don't understand supply and demand. I mean, just think about the melodic hypothetical out of Pittsburgh. Imagine a burger increasing in price. Sure, but what if you're online and then your burger decreases in price? Because that'll happen after 2 p.m. Or based on this and the front page of newspapers saying, can't believe Wendy's is raising prices part of the day. What if Wendy's just announced, we are raising all of our prices, wouldn't make the front page, but then they said, however, cause we love you guys, after 2 p.m. we're gonna keep the same Wendy's low, low prices. They would be hailed as heroes when they weren't assailed as cow slaughtering capitalists. Yes, sure. Uber charges more during in-demand periods as do hotels, sporting events, nightclubs, every commodity, unionized workers, midtown Manhattan, every bar not during happy hour, the non-happy hours, or as I call them, the joyless junctures, so many things, why not fast food? I fail to see how it's different. I fail to see how it's wrong. It just seems a little unusual. Slightly unusual. Then again, I might be a bad guy to judge. I'm more than slightly unusual. The other day, I went to pick my sister up from the airport. I was parked for about nine minutes on the way out. charge for parking four seventy five. Should have been incensed, but what I did, I, I said to myself, you know, this was like five years ago, and now we're charged three ninety eight. I said, nah, eh, that's not so bad. But you know, three ninety eight five years ago with inflation is about five dollars 75 today, so it's kind of a bargain. Let me tell you, no one but me in America thinks like this. There has, relating back to the Wendy's burger search, there's never been a more surmountable problem. A lunchtime fast food burger is an extremely elastic item. I'm not talking about meat quality. I'm talking about economics. It's a replaceable item. You don't like Wendy's? Go to Burger King. The prices are higher at Burger King? Yes, but the truly important thing is the prices never change throughout the day. What if they change to be lower? No, we're apparently against changed prices. No, actually, we're okay when they change when they're lower. But they change when they're lower. That means at other times they're higher And then we could do the, oh my God, I can't believe Wendy's is charging more for a burger at some times thing, game, spiel, as it were. This is a fun story to ruminate about. This is a fun story. In fact, this is why the Planet Money Indicator exists. And here's what the Planet Money Indicator is going to sound like. I checked today. It wasn't today. It's got to be tomorrow, right? They'll set the scene. They'll be inside. The two hosts will be inside a Wendy's. I'm going to fake that sensation here. And one host will turn to the other and they'll ask each other questions. I'm going to play both parts in tomorrow's Planet Money Indicator. I assume the algorithm predicts. Hey, Darren, how much is that burger? Well, Wylan, it's $2. No, wait, the clock struck 12. It's $3 now. What's going on? I'm sorry, that's a terrible accent and I'm really degrading the excellent host of the Planet Money Indicator. Oh, the other host will say, well, actually, we're here with an economist to explain. And explain they will because apparently people have to be led through the idea of supply and demand and that businesses have really done this all the time and it's no worse than charging for anything else that has a profit margin built in. Some things are lost leaders. Sometimes you got to get the money where the money is there for the getting. So all of this, all of this huge sea change, which as I've demonstrated is only slightly, slightly different from everything that we've ever come to expect, means that the TikTok teens are here to tear it apart.
2: Okay, what in the French fried fuck Wendy's? Now I have to plan out my
1: day? Oh, it's, well, it's 10 a.m. I mean, it shouldn't be that busy. Oh, it's 12, can't go to Wendy's. I'm not gonna go to Wendy's. Wendy's, you're fast food, you're not good food. You're forgetting your place, okay? Fast food used to be cheap, okay? You got me all steamed up and I'm supposed to go back to bed.
0: A shitty hamburger should not be more expensive any time of day.
1: Yo, uh, fast food places that are thinking about doing surge prices, I got some news for you. Fast food places in general, y'all better watch your goddamn ass, and I have been saying this for a very long time now, but they better watch their goddamn ass. Wendy's, what the fuck? My God, my God. Excellent points, TikTok teens. You'd imagine Dave Thomas is spinning in his bacon-induced grave. In fact, and in reality, I endorse this Uber-style pricing, also known as this Red Roof-In-style pricing, this Manhattan South of Central Park after 5 a.m. style pricing. The only problem I foresee with Wendy's doing this is all the cars that'll begin to idle outside the drive through at 1.55 p.m., or patrons loitering in the waiting area to time their orders for the 2 p.m. price drop. But you know what? When that happens, there's going to be a patron at like 1.58 who says, screw it, it's worth the two extra dollars to be able to jump this line of these 12 other cheapskates and get my burger. And guess what? When that happens, Wendy's will be the first company to embrace theme park style Premium fast passes, which will lead to more coverage, more backlash, more TikTok teens, and another special Planet Money Indicator episode on the Wendy's Fast Pass, revolutionizing the dining industry, just like the Wendy style Surge burgers revolutionized food way back in 2024. And that's it for today's show. The Gist actually was produced by the Quaint Mallards. Corey Wara and Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise, go to advertisecast.com/slash/the-gist. Umpruji pru dupru. And thanks for listening. I work at Burger King making flame whoppers. I wear paper hats. Would you like an apple pie with that? Would you like an apple pie with that?